surviving you're thriving here on another motivational thursday here at presby cast we're starting a new thing we're all this is the tony robbins edition we're switching full-time from american presbyterianism there's simply no money in this that we have to pivot and maximize and optimize and realign our strategy with the missions and values of the modern world so again uh, welcome to our show. It's going to be a little bit different tonight. And by a little bit different, I mean we've just got three of the same people that we've had on like 18 different well, times. Well, no, hold on, hold on. Sean has been on for a long time. It's not an insult. And we've been preferring, you know, these other young PCA guys to Job, you know, the former Baptist. We sort of kick him around and just call on him to fill in and stuff like that. But no, no. And then Dr. Clark hasn't been on the for at least 20 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> the former Baptist pastor, like, do you have any idea how little that narrows it down? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, so, well, yeah, we're here. So, every, a good one. everyone on here tonight, except Sean, uh, who, Sean, I was describing you to Job earlier, and I used the term force of nature. I, I assume that works for you. But you're the only, sure. you're I'm not. You're the only wow. non-former Baptist here, although I think you put in some time at Calvary Baptist, uh, Calvary Chapel. Calvary so, Chapel. Yeah. so you your, too. Your pronouns are thunder and storm. Thunder <laughs> and storm. I like how uh, Brad says uh, um, Baptist when he says Baptist. How does he say it? There's two B's in ba- that word. Baptist. Oh, okay, I got it. Yeah, so that's the official it's pronunciation. But it, it's sort of like when... Um, when mom starts talking about home, her dialect changes. She could be, she hasn't moved. She's in the same place. But when home comes up, it's Dodge. Well, so. you, you can tell Job is not a Baptist anymore because he's smoking that cigar. I was going to say he's got to get some cigar gum. Jealous right now. Yeah, it's 63 degrees in Thanksgiving ish nice. week. I'm going uh, nice. to have a good, nice cigar to enjoy this weather and the company. What, what kind of cigar is it? He asks out of ignorance it's and curiosity. San Latino Requiem. It's a Cameroon wrapper. I think it has a Nicaraguan filler. Very nice. Okay, too too much information for us non-cigar people. Ben <laughs> Ratliff is happy right now. Uh, well, here we are, and um, it's um, well, we're, we're we're wrapping up the year of twenty twenty three. And um, we want to send this show out to our, our listener, Brad Hansen, who I, I think I met at the Reformation Worship Conference. And uh, he is joining us from his hotel room. I mean, he's watching, um, excuse me, hospital room. He's in the hospital mm. with some uh, just some uh, issues he's dealt with over the years. And he's a faithful viewer and listener. So we uh, send the show out to him for what that's worth. I don't know what that gets you, 
in the uh, in the big scheme of things, but we'll <laughs> we'll we'll hope uh, hope for the best there. So um, yeah, I was thinking about what what do, do we need to talk about? And um, Thanksgiving approaches next week. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk in the secular media. Oh, you know, how are you going to talk to your crazy uncles about Trump or Israel or this or that? Um, and then, you know, the end of 2023 20, means the beginning of 2024, which I hate to break it to you. It's going to be a crazy, insane year. And we'll talk about what it could hold. Um but this is just sort of a uh, yeah, sort of a pastoral show to talk about how we approach these things. Um, you know, the holidays throw us together with people, you know, outside of our church, outside of our nuclear family. Some of us just have radioactive families, but uh, for those with nuclear families, we're outside of that circle, uh, and we may have to talk about things that we don't normally talk about with people that we don't normally talk to. And, um, you know, some of us maybe do live in echo chambers, um, but uh, not at Thanksgiving, probably. Uh, if one thing characterizes a large Thanksgiving gathering, it's probably not agreement on every last issue. So that's sort of what I want us to look at from uh, a Presbyterian, Reformed, spirituality of the church um, uh, perspective. So, Resby, your thoughts on this um on this uh, topic that no one else is doing a podcast on. Well, I didn't know if we could do 90 minutes on whether mac and cheese belongs at the table, but uh, we are here breaking new ground, I guess. Uh, only we can do this. No. Um, it's, uh, we've got, we've got the right crew for it. Um, you know, let's just, let's get into the Viking ship and go raid some villages. <laughs> uh, pl- for pl- Jesus, for Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> plunder, plunder some uh, monasteries in uh, Northern England and uh, Scotland. You got all the Christian nationalist attention with that one. They're on board now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're listening now. Yeah. Yes. Just, Did you see the the the, uh, the uh, I guess neo pagan guy on Twitter? Um, he, he uh, I don't know, I don't remember what it was called, but somebody. Uh, Said you know uh, it was a meme and and um, he had Thor you know in one panel and it was, you know as the sort of conquering Norse god and and then he said uh, you know and your god died on a tree. And, I uh, did see that. I remember that. And I and I pointed out that um, Boniface went to Germany, cut down the oak of Thor, and made a chapel out of it. So. <laughs> There's your. Great Maybe the, a, a real transformationalism right there, baby. There you go. Nothing happened to him. And all the Germans were very impressed with that. Yeah, well. Well, there, the, these are strange days for any number of reasons. Uh, we have this, um, I don't know if you call it myopia or, um, or uh, I don't know, time, pre, pre, preference for our own time. Uh, which can lead us to, th- to to think that this is the worst it's ever been, and it's never been so bad. Uh, that um, uh, because of uh, the, the the issues du jour, which to be frank happen to be um, uh, Middle Eastern war, um, uh, sexual uh, um, mutilation of children, um, a Democrat in the White House who is um, uh, not not in possession of all of his faculties. 
uh, things like that, little things like that. What do you mean? He's got all the faculty he needs. His wife is a professor. Uh, she is a doctor. <laughs> yeah, she's a doctor, yes. yes. <laughs> I know about that kind of doctor, but enough enough about that right now. Um, it's a family show. Yeah. So, um, But it's just not true that, that we live in a unique time. There, there are some unique factors. Uh, but, you know, the, the real 50th anniversary of the PCA comes up on December 4th, and we've got an exciting show planned for that with a uh, with a, an all-star guest and maybe some new audio that no one's ever heard. But I, I went back and listened to the address of the first, uh, of the, the, the moderator of the First General Assembly, uh, a ruling elder, Jack Williamson. And uh, we've, we've put it on the feed twice, and you'll hear from it again in the next month. But it was in 1973, the end of 1973. Uh, as uh, Providence would have it, I've also been listening to a four-hour podcast, Martyr Made. I don't endorse everything. I don't endorse the worldview necessarily of Daryl Cooper in every way. But he's an interesting uh, amateur historian, kind of like Dan Carlin. And he did a four-hour show on the Israeli, uh, the, the, the wars in Israel from 48 to 82. Um, the worst period was that early 70s period, uh, to, to be Young sure. Kippur, yeah. uh, 1972 and three were hellish years. Uh, my wife is a little couple of years older than me, so she remembers it vividly. I remember it pretty much, and I've gone back and done some research. There were skyjackings, hijackings. Uh, there was the, uh, the attack on the Israeli students at the Munich Olympics uh, village. In '72, uh, there was domestic terrorist, terrorism in this country. You know, there were, there were the Weather Underground was operative. Um, it, it was absolutely horrendous, uh, and I was thinking about it because of what you know, what's going on in, in Israel and the Middle East, which could quickly become a much bigger deal. Um, but we do not live in a unique time. Uh, it's just not not so. Uh, but we have to deal with it. And so, listening to the first. PCA General Assembly recordings. There was not one mention of any of those things I just I just I just mm. talked about. Now, certainly, uh, the the Cultural Revolution in the '60s, uh, the fact that the Northern Church, who who in '73 because of the Union Presbyteries, uh, the PCUS, the Southern Church was already formally connected with. The Confession of 67 had already happened, which was a Bardian, neo-Orthodox, liberal, politically liberal at least, uh, confession. Um, those that, that was certainly a backdrop to the formation of the PCA. But the PCA really was about the spirituality of the church. And there was just no mention of everything I've just recounted at the First General Assembly. And it occurred to me that if, if they could focus on the church— uh, and on uh, the God of the Bible, uh, that we could do the same thing. And that might be a recipe for success in, uh, in 2024. So that's, that's my thinking. That's the reason for what our discussion. Um, and um, so, Scott, you're a little older than me. You may, you may be about the age of my wife, not sure. Uh, would you like to confirm or deny what I said about the 70s? Uh, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, you all the things that you listed and more, um, and, and really that period probably yeah. stretched. Yeah, to, recession, Watergate, 
Suez crisis, all those things. Uh, Inflation and stagflation. I mean, there were so inflation and interest rates, you know, uh, skyrocketed through the 70s. And then the the worst of all, Resby, was what? Polyester and disco. So to top it all off. (laughs) Arguably, that whole epoch ended in, um, oh, what what year was it? um, The the best and only good thing the White Sox ever did was killing disco in a single night. When did Steve Dahl blow up disco records at uh, was it Comiskey Park in yep. in Chicago um, was it 1980 no it was before that it was before then okay yeah, yeah but it might have been late 70s so that's yeah, July 12 1979 79 okay it was a little late but i was a senior in high school and uh, i was all for it <laughs> blowing up disco records because that that rubbish was everywhere on the radio. You couldn't well, get. You got to be careful that Dr. Clark, because if you said it out loud now, it makes you a racist. Because you. Just well, I've, I have I've heard that argument, and it's just stupid. Uh, uh, the, Bee Gees, <laughs> the Bee Gees were not black guys; they were three Australian white guys. I, 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 I like the Bee Gees. So, well, hey. the old Bee Gees, the old Bee Gees were great. The harmonies were fantastic. The disco Bee Gees, not so much. Well, you know, but no, no, Saturday Night Fever is kind of the soundtrack of my life. So, yeah, well, you you can't think about disco. (laughs) Explains some things. Travolta walking down, yeah. You can't think about (laughs) dis. You can't think about disco without thinking about gay culture, really. So, you know, some people think that you know the whole gay thing is invented in the past fifteen or twenty or thirty years. Um, not so. I blame John Travolta for that. Yeah, yeah not not so. Uh, no, you're. I think you're exactly right. Uh, uh, more seriously, uh, uh, things were really uh, very dark. Uh, drug abuse was sweeping the country. Um, uh, we we were battling a heroin addiction. I, you know, in my very uh, modest but um, decent, clean. you know, sort of older suburban neighborhood. You know, we were in the city. We weren't, you know, in a a ring city or anything like that. But, um, you know, not very far from downtown. Um, uh, We had um, heroin addicts just wandering around the neighborhood. I I had a guy uh, just wander up. I'm sitting on the front stoop. Guy wandered up, sat down next to me, tracks all up and down his arm. Uh, stoned out of his mind. Uh, I don't know. Nineteen gospel tracks up his arm, yeah. right? Got gospel yeah. tracks. <laughs> Nineteen seventy, maybe tracks. something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, um, uh, nothing so edifying. I mean, he was harmless because he was just zoned out of his mind. But uh, and you know, and that's how weird things were. I remember it, but it didn't seem that strange because it was not at all unusual to see people wandering around. This is Omaha, Nebraska, the middle of the country. Um, you know, uh, huge uh, anti-war protests, huge. Mm-hmm. Um, that are hard, for, you know, we, there are some large protests that go on now, but uh, a few of them as large as the, you know, uh, hell hath no fury like baby boomers about to be drafted after the Tet Offensive <laughs> and sent to Vietnam. They, they were not having any of it, so... Um, yeah, I think it, I compared boomers to millennials today, and that Gen X thinks both of y'all suck. So, I mean, that was my, my reference. <laughs> y'all, y'all are terribly similar. 
Sorry, Dr. Clark. There's always exceptions, I'm sure. Fair, no, fair, no. I, my, I, I've been warning people about my generation for a long time. The, uh, I warned the kids when I was teaching at Wheaton. I said, "You wait till the boomers retire. retire. They are going to roll on Washington in a million gleaming wheelchairs, and, <laughs> and, and you kids are all going to have to pay for it." So that's right. Uh, well, it's, know, it's the millennials who are the the second toughest generation after those who stormed the beach at Normandy because uh, we <laughs> successfully survived the assaults of uh, people posting online without their real name. Um, yeah, exactly. the, the horrors of which cause yeah. uh, a certain presidential candidate to lose sleep at night. It has made me realize, though, that the 1980s were the actual golden era of modern American history. It doesn't, hasn't, it, it, it was the best it was then. It hasn't got, it's gotten worse ever since. It, it was an amazing time for a kid who grew up in the 70s. I mean, my older sister, she had the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. And, you know, I we got the Bee Gees and Jimmy Carter and, you know, Jimmy inflation. Carter. So the um, so when the 80s came, it, you know, when, once once they killed inflation and the economy took off, it was really that was it was amazing. It so, was. You know, when you were reading all that, or did going through that list, Brad, not reading, but going through that list, I was I immediately thought of Matthew uh, 24, 5, uh, where Jesus, following, where Jesus says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But the next thing he says is always impresses me. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Um, so that's that's the that's the nature of life between the two advents. Yeah, uh, we have a semi-realized eschatology. The kingdom has come. The king has a kingdom. He has citizens in that kingdom. He's gathering citizens in that kingdom, but the consummation is not yet. And so we um, we live in that tension. It's just the way it is, and. Um, a lot of the New Testament is written to help people understand uh, what's happening in the world and why things are the way they are, and and to not panic, and to understand that Christ is is sovereign. Christ is in charge. I mean, that's that's why the the Revelation is written the way that it is. That's the main message of the Revelation: is don't worry. Jesus has this all in hand, and and let me tell you a story about how all that goes. Well, and also that the the locusts are uh, Russian helicopters, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so all or most of us are on X, right? Uh, Twitter, what formerly known as Twitter, as X, not ecstasy. Uh, it's the resident guy who's not. You're supposed to at this point remind everyone you're not. <laughs> you're not on X. Well, you know, every, you know someone's not on Twitter or Facebook because they're going to tell you as quickly as possible. Oh, there you I'm go. I'm not there. Yeah. So, so there you, you know, um, we didn't obviously we didn't have social media. Uh, uh, you know, growing up, um, so we our panic buttons weren't being pushed as intently or intensely as they are now. I think that's really significant. Um, because the, uh, objectively things are not as bad now as they right. were, and standard of living is higher. Um, you know, obviously there are things that are not good. This, the 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 radical turn of the sexual revolution is really bad. Um, and it you know if you had said 
to me in 1979 that, um, you know, it will be, you know, the things that we see now that, you know, men will be doing, I have to put this carefully, you know, it's a family program, uh, will be doing suggestive dances dressed like women in front of small children, and that this would be encouraged by the authorities, or that that school districts would be approving pornographic books for the uh, libraries, I would have said, well, that, you know, that's crazy. Uh, you know, you're just, you're just a uh, fear monger. So I, I'm not downplaying the, the, the terrible things that are going on, um, the redefinition of marriage and, and all kinds of things. Um, but, um, you know, that's life in a fallen world. A lot, in a lot of ways, things are not as um, crazy now as, um, as they were then. It wasn't that long ago that you could walk late at night in um, Times Square. I, I don't think you'd want to do it now, but it wasn't that long ago that you could walk uh, through Times Square uh, and be uh, relatively safe. You could not do that in the 1970s. You shouldn't do it. it well, you'd be an idiot to do it. Well, well, you can thank the PCA for that, as we all know. Oh, we, we, wow. We won't go so into Tim Keller was out busting heads in the middle of the night. Is that what you're telling us? In the 1970s, yeah. Well, no, he's, he's a keeping, pretty— Keeping he, New Yorkers safe? He was a pretty big guy. You know, maybe he could have. <laughs> I mean, he, po he poked Mark Driscoll in the chest once. Or, no, this guy that worked for Mark Driscoll. But anyway, yeah, he, he, okay. he saw the problems with Driscoll. He didn't do anything about it, but he saw them. So, got to give him credit for that. I met Keller once at an event and asked him a question, and he— Honest to God, he poked me too. So he he liked the poke. Wow! Oh, interesting. There you go. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I even poke me. My mother used to poke me in the chest when I was a kid. It, you know, tap me in the in the sternum when she wanted my attention. Um, it, she's the last person who's who's going to be allowed to poke me in the sternum. Uh, just a heads up: next person that pokes me in the sternum is going to get a <laughs> going to get a left. Oh, you're you're a you're a pacifist, Clark. We all know it. No, that's not true. I, I the only the only thing I learned through uh, the Omaha Public Schools, speaking of public education, we were talking about earlier, was how to keep my right up, lead with my left, keep my head moving, and never ever quit. If your fight's never over if you're still if you're still fighting. You, you learned that in public school. Absolutely, See, I learned that at Catholic school. Yeah. So. I mean, <laughs> Buffy, no. Are you, are you saying there's fighting Irishmen at a Catholic school? Is that what I'm you're saying over you. there, Sean? Portray, are you portraying stereotypes about Catholics and Irishmen in America? Is that, is that what you're doing there, Lod? Hey, it's just, it's always the reality of it. Actually, <laughs> it, it, I was dodging, I was dodging violence and pederasts through most of my private school career. I mean, you know, well, public school, public school <laughs> is a cakewalk compared to that. Yeah, I, I, the the uh, the kid, one of the last kids I fought ended up in Catholic school. That was the last stop before you uh, might convert to Rome. <laughs> that was the last stop before uh, juvenile school. hall. So, all right. So we've hey, the, nuns, the, the nuns ran the reform school too. So you know, same difference. <laughs> So we've we've determined we've established that the seventies fifty years ago, um, and frankly, you know what was fifty years before fifty years ago? It was nineteen twenty three <laughs> when Jay Cresson Machen wrote Christianity and Liberalism, and um, uh, the Protestant uh, establishment in this country 
uh, was taken on water and uh, burning at the same time, like uh, some you know ships that have been torpedoed. They're burning and sinking at the same time. Um, so yes, uh, they're certainly the mainline churches have uh, they're dying. They've shrunken. Christianity has less uh, apparent impact in the country. Um, yeah. But in some ways, the doctrine of our churches is better than it was a um, hundred years ago. Uh, and, and who knows, maybe 50 uh, in some ways as well. So, I, mean, I think Aaron Wren is right. We do live in a negative world. So, I mean, relative to the status of Christianity in the culture, I think that's true. Um, wasn't that Mencken's line is something about it's it's the the media and the politicians' job to keep everybody at a at a frothy high so that they yes. can they can they can pander their political solutions to it. Sure, yeah, they've always known that the best way to get people to to do something is to stimulate their fight or flight reflex. Sure. Uh, right. it, now it's that we could all do it, right? Well, well, right. Social have... media has just amplified it and in- increased the, the turnover. So we don't turn over every 20 years. We turn over about every four years now. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and if you're a, you know, a trust funder with a couple of uh, donors, you've, you've all of a sudden got a platform. You know, you're a, uh, you're a reformer, and uh, there's a strong temptation to, um, to uh, pander to whoever will, uh, will like, your, like your posts. And uh, subscribe to your stuff. So we start- I do think people are. Well, I guess I should put it. To, let me put it as a question. Um, do you think people are stupider now than they were then? Um, I think they're the less educated. I, I think they're less educated. Well, I know yeah, I am. <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't read a decent set of books, you know, consistently, and I don't know about a decade. Yeah. Well, you've been raising a family and running a city. Well, that's true. Well, I, 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 I was playing smart going into it, so I could take a ten-year break. I wasn't, that wasn't difficult. <laughs> so, we, I mean, this this business of of the video, you know, the TikTok stuff going around, and people promoting uh, Os- uh, Bin Laden as a hero. Um, I'm not sure that people would have gotten away with that kind of nonsense. That's bizarre. Uh, once upon a time, and every time, just, now maybe, just imagine maybe September 13th, 2001. And someone like pulling that. I mean, there yeah. would have been there would have been a mob outside that person's house. I mean, well, Dr. I, Clark, I, you're, you're a history guy. This got to drive you nuts. We we don't remember last year, much less you know, a hundred years oh, ago, ten years yeah. ago. I mean, the turnover with social media is just amazing. They don't remember 2010 at this point. Churning. It, I don't think that's hyperbole. I've, I've no, had conversations not. with with 22, 23 year old people and where I've had to explain who Billy Graham was. Um, that wasn't that long ago. No. Um, well, so at, I, I think, I think, there's the, I think the turnover has gotten even faster. Um, I'll have to find yeah. the, the thread and link to it again. But, I mean, pe- you know, people are already linking to not great folks during COVID as, you know, sages and, and examples to follow as, like, great writers. I mean, we're already... Um, you know, already reposting them and being like, oh, wow, this is such a great piece. It's like, no, this person wanted people in camps for like a year and a half. Like they were open about it. Like, Well, you think about it in our context and, and well, I'm not there anymore, but in the PCA, you know, it, it, it was just yesterday that we were kicking the Wilsonites out of the PCA and the CRC was split or splintering up. And these folks now act like it's like the, 
it never happened. Like it's brand new. This is great stuff. And yeah. it's going, oh my gosh, we're rehashing. I mean, this was just 20, 2004 and we're rehashing it all over again. Like it's brand new in 2023. It's staggering to me. It does simplify my life. I mean, I, I, in some ways, I don't feel like I have to write as much as I did. I, I just, right, you just link to it. <laughs> I've got 9,000, literally 9,000 posts, and I can just go rehab something I wrote six years ago because it's brand new. Um, uh, so, it, it, I mean, yeah, that's an issue. I, I was thinking about that today. Uh, Christian nationalism is a Doug Wilson project. Uh, it just is. Even Even some of the people involved in it who who think it's their idea, they don't realize that really it was Doug Wilson's all along. Of course, he's uh, he's funding, published the main book uh, involved here. And uh, that's uh, so it would be good to go back and revisit some of these things from 20 in the last 20 years. Uh, now, Sean, I don't think we've had you on the show since you became the mayor of a small town, township, city, community. Um, Part I obviously what, don't care about my political future anymore, as you can tell. Yeah, because <laughs> you're here. Because you're Down here. here. Um, but so uh, politics are obviously culture, and politics are driving all the storm und drang that we're experiencing. Um, what have you learned about politics in the past uh, a decade or so? Well, politics running small town has absolutely nothing to do with the with the outrage of the day on Twitter or on social media. I mean, absolutely nothing to do with it. Running a small town is is first about your finances, uh, making sure you are good stewards of of your ad valorem taxes and your sales taxes, and you put them to good use for your services you provide. So it's police, fire, public works, city staff, and administration, and you try to build up a surplus, and that's really the extent of running a, a city, a town. It's it's all fiscally oriented. You you occasionally get into some hot button cultural items, rarely, but they're so misplaced in a small town. It's 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 largely irrelevant to it. So it's it's much more akin to running a business, but, much more akin, at least in my position, of being a CEO. But but in um, your in your old day job though you did deal with activists and protests and things like that from time to time as I recall. Yeah, well that was right. So as a real estate developer, you go into areas that are that are, you you are going to gentrify. I mean let's let's not let's not quibble about it. It's what we're there to do. Um, and you'll get a you 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 deal with well light. You would deal with people. You know you'd walk into. It was the best thing because you would go to. Um, they would have these these uh, neighborhood groups, and you'd go to their uh, their meetings, or you'd meet up outside um, out of one of their halls, and you would have white people coming up to you and, and declaring that you're a, a colonialist and a white supremacist, and they're more blue-eyed than I am, and it was just bizarre kind of engagement. Um, but that's a different dynamic. That's actually dealing with a a somewhat legitimate political opportunity going, what do we do when gentrification comes to an area and I'm displacing people? Uh, I'm displacing people from their homes uh, via property taxes or, or some sort of opportunity. So that's, there's actually some legitimacy to it. Now their complaint when they, when they, when they take on the uh, intersectionalist, you know, woke uh, 
opportunity with it, uh, it that's not legitimate. But there are legitimate concerns for for citizens who who getting displaced in their homes and how do you accommodate that opportunity? Um, but that's generally not what you would encounter. At these these young people, you know, cursing at you and yelling at you and getting in your face and calling you a racist for building an apartment complex. I mean, it was just it's kind of bunk. That so, part of it was. So have you militarized your local police force and applied for a lot of federal money, armored vehicles, things like that? Yeah, no. Although although we do suffer, there's a little bit to the degree that, that national politics affects us. So in San Antonio, our, our uh, district attorney is a Soros-backed guy. Uh-oh. So how that affects us in a small town that, that borders San Antonio and surrounded by San Antonio is... Um, the criminal activity is much more intense. And so we've increased our police presence on the streets. And, and I, as I've told, as I've told our police chief, we're just going to build a bubble around the town because San Antonio is not going to correct itself. So all you can do is make your area an unwelcome place. That, so when yeah. the criminals are out and about, they just go, well, we're not going to go there because that's not an easy target. We're going to go over here. And that's yeah. the best you can do until, until that, you know, that worm turns and it will turn eventually. And those DAs are knocked out and that, that movement toward, uh, you know, woke justice, oppressor, oppressed uh, kind of dynamic is, is removed. And it'll eventually go away because people get tired of the crime and the crime inevitably doesn't come to my neighborhood. I'm an upper middle-class neighborhood and we've got the resources to drive it away. So it's all funneled back into, into downtown. It's funneled back into poorer areas uh, where they get to suffer for it because uh, it, in their name, quite frankly, they, yeah. uh, and uh, that's just, so that's how that dynamic affects us. We just increase our police presence, hire policemen whose morale has been shot down because, because they can't actually police in the area. And we bring them onto our force, go knock yourself out guys. So uh, Job, you're a, you're a, you know, a local small medium, you know, you're, you're a big OPC church or a, small average PCA church down in Georgia. Um, pastorally, what does 2023-24 present? I mean, I, I don't know about, I don't know who your congresswoman is, our friend Ryan Beasy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is his congresswoman. No, she's not ours. Okay. But I'm just saying that the climate is, um, well, it's challenging. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, what do you tell people and what are you what are you hearing and perceiving from uh, your congregants and your neighbors about you know the level of anxiety and uh, politically uh, culturally whatever what what on the ground what is that like for you well there's Christians are have been flustered with American culture for a while but particularly since 2020 because there's no consistency there's no there's no um there's no trust at all in leadership and it's only going to get worse uh because there's there's an ex- there's now it seems like there's an expectation that things aren't going to be clear and clean and it'll be complicated and so uh, the nerve, the nerve is, is from a lot of people is that they're the worst parts of what we've been through are about to be heightened to another level. And, and the, the potential that churches are going to get pressured 
uh, more and we come under uh, more scrutiny. Now we, you know, we did not have a, a lot of, uh, we did not have a lot of, in, in our part of Georgia, did not have a lot of issues like with COVID and such, but the, but the lack of trust just fell off because no matter where you came down on how things went in Georgia in 2020, you knew it wasn't clean and you never, or at least you didn't get a resolution if you didn't think it was. And I think that's creates tension. So a lot of Christians are uh, nervous about that, fed up with the lack of trust. They want something adjusted. And so what I feel is a pastor is it's it's con it's trying to remind folks that you know while a few things I'd say while this is uh, a, a weird time for many of us in the history of things in some ways we can, we're just getting back to normal where people are in flux and problems in social society in a large scale. And that happens a lot. I mean, there's not many parts of history you go back and look at, right, where there's not some kind of real big problem. You know, I was born in 83, and, you know, a lot of things have been relatively good. And Dr. Clark said earlier, it's still pretty good in a lot of ways. But the the tensions and the, the, the issues in the church being in negative, in many ways, is getting back to normal, how things have been in a lot of places. It's new for us, though. So we, we want to learn um, <clears throat> how to keep a level head and also to to remember who is king who controls all things and one of my practical encouragements to them is is that keep the lord's day well continue staying strong in under you know these these basic things we know stay active in prayer let's not shy away from praying for our leaders publicly uh, and one thing i will be encouraging more and more is learning the joy of ignoring those things that are not helpful and those voices that are not helpful. There's going to be so many articles going to be coming out over the next year that, and people are going to read them and they're going to get frustrated and want answers and different things of that nature. And my whole thing will be embrace the joy of you, of knowing you do not have to read everything that comes out, every link you're sent. You're going to get frustrated with, with Christianity today. And the real answer is, well, what do we do about that? It's like, you just don't have to read it. You don't have to listen to them. And you can trust uh, the Lord and trust uh, his, his answers and his ways of the church and continue doing what we have. Be prepared in, in, in different ways. But there is going to be a level of, of good ignoring, I think, is a place I would start with. Because there's so many places that are not helpful. Uh, in that way, well, I think well, I, I, this, why, is, this why, is one of the major tenets of Presbyterianism. <laughs> why do you hate America, Job? <laughs> if I can piggyback on that for just a second, because I think that's really important. That that you know, we were joking about social media, you know, amplifying things, but but that's a, a reality that uh, people use social media to get people to do what they want, and. Um, and so the you know the Christian nationalists are amping up or amplifying uh, the the evils around us, to, you know, to get people afraid. And of course, coming out of COVID and all of the lockdowns, people are afraid. Um, you know, I, I've lost some very dear friends, dear longtime friends, who are, and in part because they're just really, really angry about what happened where they lived. 
and um, and they've aligned themselves with people who are promising solutions. And it's not going to happen, which gets us back to the whole cosplay thing, right? It it just isn't going to happen. But it makes people feel like they're doing something. And and I want to say, you know, to pick up on what uh, Job was saying, um, you know, we're reformed, uh, and uh, we're Christians. And the first thing we say in the creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Um, you know, we're not pagans. We don't think that things just randomly happen. Uh, we think that God's in charge of everything. I mean, it's not like the, the Word of God doesn't say. Again, you know, here goes Clark reading from the Bible again, but I can't help it. Uh, uh, Matthew six twenty five. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or nor about your body, or what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Uh, then why are you anxious about your clothing? Uh, and he goes on, consider the lilies of the field. And, you know, Jesus isn't kidding when he says this. God is sovereign. And it's not to say we shouldn't be responsible, not to say that we shouldn't uh, fulfill our vocation in the world, yes. uh, do our duty, all of those things. But um, a lot of the stuff about which we worry is stuff over which we have practically no control. Right. Um, so that's why I love what, what Sean's doing. He's actually doing something in his local community. Um, you know, all these guys talk about, you know, taking back America, uh, instituting, a, you know, a Christian nationalism. And then there's Sean actually doing something while all these other guys are bloviating about taking over America and instituting Christianity. Um, I think it's also a yes. And, and it is so important too to remind Christians, and this is a good way to help, you know, explain some of the reform are some of our reform thinking is like what can what that there is a difference in what the ecclesiastical body can do and the individual Christian can do. And so often the questions are what are we gonna do? It's like look, the body of Christ has a, a different res responsibility or approach and what you as an individual Christian can do. And Sean is a good example in that light. And and a lot of them are it's like we 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 can't we can't ignore but we have to remind them like guys that the body of Christ cannot do some of the stuff or, and not do everything. We don't, we have a limited mission. We only have so many tools on our tool belt. And That's right. Christians, Christians can do things, but the, when you, you're exactly right, Job, when you say the body of Christ, what is the church, the visible church commissioned to do? And, you know, people want to use, I think, more and more because they're afraid, they want to use the church as a kind of a union, uh, as a way of, you know, um, leveraging, you know, lever lever using the church for leverage against the government, the culture, the bad people out there, and they demand that the church as church speak to this and speak to that. And and I, I understand I have a position that not everybody shares, maybe, maybe nobody shares it uh, on that, but I, I do think we could all agree that that we have to be really circumspect about what we ask the visible institutional church to say. And, you know, the, because the history of the church tells us that when we lose our focus on what, what it is the church is actually called to do, uh, then the, the church comes, uh, uh, finds itself in a very bad way. I think that's 
fair to say. And we lose yeah, the, we lose the gospel too. I think it's 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 fair having you know working in the private sector and now being in, involved in, in public service. There, what I need from the church personally is is confidence in theology. I, I can I can round into and there's a number of people this this panel included that can round into different uh, secular or common vocation jobs. What what I desperately need is good theology, teaching from scripture, grounding me, continuing to ground me in my faith. As I said, I haven't been engaged in it as much as I would have liked in the past 10 years. I need a really good pastor and a really good church to remind me of the truths of scripture. Um, I don't need help from Christian nationalists how to run a government, how to run a, how to run a local municipality. I don't need their help on how to run a business. I need y'all's help to remind me of the gospel and the truths of the scripture. That's what I need the church for. And Turtles has been pointing out um, wonderfully on uh, Twitter X uh, how at least some of the Christian nationalists are, and I've been noticing this too in this statement on Christian nationalism, how they're willing to adopt a minimalist account of Christianity and to, to cash in the gospel in order to uh, get their desired social outcome, uh, lowest common denominator of uh, uh, Christian nationalism. And so there's a guy uh, banging the drum on Twitter for Christian nationalism and uh, Richard Baxter, which, you know, would be, if you, if you know what he said about justification, it's a disaster. It's a repudiation of the Reformation. So why would I, as a Reformed guy, have any interest in a nationalism, if we're going to have nationalism, that doesn't have the gospel. Mm. Uh, that, that, that I can't see what my interest in that would be. So what, what's my priority? And what's the priority of the nationalists? It seems culture is more interesting to them and more central to them than, it is, that, than, uh, than Christ or, or a cult, if you will, in the technical sense of worship. No, we, we've, got Sean, well, and, and, we've, got, we've got Sean on here, so we should ask him, um, when it comes to Protestant Christian nationalism, which is what's being proposed now, mm-hmm. some sort of non-established but still government-approved and preferred Protestant faith, if you look at it, well, of course, the Constitution's a failed document. We're gonna we're gonna have to blow that up. We're gonna have a Christian prince who's gonna have monarchical powers. <laughs> And he's going to, I don't know how he's going to know which denominations and flavors of Protestantism to concern, to prefer. Um, the councils of the churches would have to have some sort of uh, civil power or advisory power that was, was, was really determinative, unless you're going to turn it all over to the Christian prince, which would seem historically to be a bad idea. Uh, just <laughs> maybe. Um, but but to me, the fantasy element of all this is that we're going to have a Protestant Christian nationalism, and not only are we going to defeat the uh, the pagans and the secularists and the Unitarians and the mainliners, but we're going to defeat the Roman Catholics too, the integralists, who are working hard. They have their own project. Sean knows a little bit about this. Um the only way you can that I can 
even barely imagine a sort of Christian hege- uh, easy for me to say hegemony hegemony I don't know how you say it Dr. Clark hegemony. knows the word yeah hegemony is if the Protestants and the Catholics got together and then you have lost the gospel but Sean give us the uh, you know I don't know maybe all the way from the Knights of Columbus example to the highbrow integralists to the uh, I don't know is that I forget. I love to say the word. Uh, I'm not sure what it means. The uh, Sedecavantists or something like that. Um, okay. How in the world are the are the, the Protestants are going to uh, going to do all this without cooperating with the with the Roman Catholics? They're going to do it poorly. Essentially, how that's going to go down. Well, I think you've said before, <laughs> and I've said this that the, the the Roman Catholics are going to beat up the Protestant Christian nationalists and take their lunch money. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You're going to absolutely war with them. You are. So, we already saw this in evangelicals and Catholics together. I mean, right. before we were even at this point, when it was still a quote unquote neutral world, right? Um, the evangelicals couldn't wait to sign away the the doctrine of justification, uh, and we weren't anywhere near where we are then. Nobody in national public life was advocating legalization of, of uh, same-sex marriage. Um, and so, you know, now, of course, how, how would that go? So if they were, if evangelicals rolled over on the article of the standing or falling of the church, in even in the ECT1 and ECT2, before there was any real pressure, what would they do now? Well, you already see what they're doing. You can see it in the statement on Christian nationalism, where they basically say, we're, you know, we're not taking sides. Um, yeah, I mean, for me as a former Roman Catholic, if you want to, if your religion is going to be about culture change, I'm going back to Rome. That's not why I came to Protestantism. I, if if I wanted to engage in that, I, gave, I would engage in Roman Catholic social theory. I would uh, engage in the monastics and the religious orders. I can tap all of that better and for a longer period of time back there. I came to Protestantism because you had the gospel. It's the only reason I came. I had to have it. I couldn't find it anywhere else. And it's it's the only card that, in Protestantism that you have to play. You, you, you didn't to. come for shine, Jesus, shine? No, I didn't. The evangelical part of it did. <laughs> but no, I even, you know, you listen to the neo-Calvinists and, and they try to hang their hat on 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 transformation and and a, a form of Kuyperianism, if you will. But that's not what you guys have to sell. I can get that somewhere else. What I can't get somewhere else is the gospel. That's what you have. And it's great and it's grand. And I don't know why Protestantism feels this compulsion not to just live there all the time. And you get actual and you get actual gospel applications of the text from the gospel preached. And so you could say you get the gospel, a true understanding, true presentation. And you can apply it, and back to Dr. Clark's quote earlier, do not be anxious for nothing. One of the reasons you don't have to be anxious is that your eternal soul doesn't ride on how this nation turns out. You're in covenant with God through Christ. The covenant was made with, with Christ, and we are uh, united to him, and so we are secure in him. This thing, whole thing can fall apart, and we might be watching it before our eyes. But what we have the hope of is eternal life, and it does guide us now. And it guides the individual Christian well. Back to that. What does the body need to do versus the individual? 
and we can hang on these promises because that's what it, when everything falls apart, look what we need that. And yet oftentimes today, it, unfortunately for Christians, when things are looking around socially falling apart, we're trying so hard to build something back or new or a better version instead of, and yet we're all anxious. What do we need to be anxious for nothing? And that's a great application of the gospel. You know, you wonder about that uh, radical who wrote, Therefore, in order that none of us may stumble on that stone, let us first consider that there is a twofold government in man. One aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and in reverencing God. The second is political, whereby man is educated for the duties of humanity and and uh, citizenship that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and the temporal jurisdiction, by which is meant uh, that the former sort of government pertains to the life of the soul, while the latter has to do with the concerns of this present life. Uh, we, he says, um, the one we uh, may call the spiritual kingdom, the other the political kingdom. Now these two, as we've divided them, must always be examined separately. And while one is being considered, we must call away and turn aside the mind from thinking about the other. There are, to, uh, in man, almost done, so to speak, two worlds over which different kings and different laws have authority. I think that radical who said that could really help us here, um, where we can do, you know, engage our world around us and, and you know, fulfill our, our vocation in the secular world. And that was totally uh, into vision, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that that radical, that R two K radical was John Calvin, and uh, that's from the Institute of, of the Christian Religion three nineteen fifteen. Um, so, uh, I really, really think that that distinction would help us. Uh, where we can preserve the spirituality of the church, and um, and uh, preserve uh, uh, the gospel, we don't have to cash that in, and we can still engage the world around us faithfully. And um, and so we, I'm not calling. I'm, you know, I'm not an Anabaptist. I'm not an ascetic. I'm not calling for withdrawal, withdrawal from the world, but just remembering the the, the spheres and the authorities that God has instituted over each of those spheres. You know, our brother Carl Truman, uh, the only the only Protestant intellectual, I'm, I'm just kidding, but uh, uh, he, writing in uh, First Things, uh, he wrote an article uh, called uh, Protestants Need to Go Back to Basics. Uh, of course, we need the gospel, but we're not Jesus-only... Um, uh, evangelicals, uh, the doctrine of God is important too, uh, and that's the gist of this article. That um, we 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 better know who God is, and we're not going to have any comfort in this uh, chaotic world that we live in if we don't understand uh, theology proper, uh, the, um, the, the the theology of God that we get from the great creeds. And from the confessions, and uh, we won't have good Christology if we don't have good uh, Trinitarian theology to go with it. I was listening to an excellent uh, Reform Forum 
program today where um, I think Lane Tipton was talking about uh, Jay Gresham Machen's, uh, I mean, for, a, for, for the specialty he had, his theology proper was fantastic. And there's great, there's great doctrine of God and Christianity and liberalism, a great uh, uh, explication of the transcendence of God and uh, all those things. And uh, that's a big part of this, too. Uh, I think I asked the question today, what percentage of evangelicals are functionally non-Trinitarian? Um, and I, I'm afraid the answer to that question is a, a disturbing one. So we certainly need to understand what the church should be doing, who Christ is. Um, but, uh, you know, theology proper, Orthodox, Trinitarian theology, doctrine of God has never been more important either. So maybe maybe the most important thing we could do to make it through 2024 and beyond is to, uh, is to tune up our uh, theology proper. And uh, well, remember that God is triune and uh, immutable. Don't we have historical examples? I mean, if we had a historian on here, right, maybe he could give some. Uh, where the church, in yeah. many of our, yeah. great, <laughs> our great confessions um, and such throughout time, if we were to look and say just simply when were they written and ask, was there any turmoil in society? going on at those times frequently yeah. most of the time there were and here they are arguing we might say over we could be accused to say over these theological matters but the world's burning down and you're arguing about you know this and that of theology and it's like there's something to learn there and i think that's yeah. a good thing we can remind ourselves of now when guy debray was being pursued hunted by the spanish in the lowlands of the French-speaking lowlands of the Netherlands, uh, Belgium and um, and the like, and chased into France and back and forth, um, you know, and, and then meanwhile writing the Belgic Confession and confessing, you know, right at the outset, uh, the doctrine of God, and um, you know they were trying to kill him. And I can easily imagine because I've had this conversation many times. Oh, you know, we need to quit arguing about the federal vision because the culture is too bad. Uh, we need to quit arguing about open theism because the culture is too bad. We need to, uh, you know, talk about the culture. Uh, I've had this argument many, many times. Uh, we we qu quit arguing about eternal functional subordination. We, we you know, uh, or eternal generation. These are theological niceties or the covenant of works, whatever it is. So the culturalists, people who major in the culture, um, they, they always can find a way to uh, give up or concede or, um, you know, uh, marginalize uh, cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, so I know lots of American Christians, I believe, I'm confident, could tell me uh, a lot more about the state of politics than they can, um, you know, articulate the two natures of Christ or the Trinity or, uh, you know, immutability or what really are basic Christian truths. Um, so I, I think that's a big problem. And I think that's one of the reasons why is, you know, to get back to where I was before that people are so anxious uh, because we've lost track of these things that used to inform us that just in some ways don't seem to be informing us anymore. Yeah. So uh, yeah, here I agree. Mm -hmm. A little passage from uh, Truman's place, a piece 
Uh, the Reformed Orthodox of the Westminster Assembly would have considered deviance on the doctrine of God to be anathema, and if forced to choose, would certainly have preferred the company of a Thomist to that of someone who denied simplicity, eternal generation, or God's foreknowledge. Why do we not think the same? Uh, the, modern, the modern Protestant imagination is oddly different from that of our ancestors. Now, that's an understatement. <laughs> the modern Protestant imagination is oddly different from that of our predecessors. Um, I think we have to say that that's, um, that's true, um, and that's, uh, that's food for thought. So uh, do read that article at First Things. So, yeah, I, I mean, the question is, why is the doctrine of God important? Um, in, uh, you know, in troublous times, if, if you don't know God's sovereign and immutable, among many other things, I don't know where your comfort comes from. Um, so, Sean was saying we need the gospel. We need the truth about who God is as well, and that Christ, training, and that Christ is God. Yeah, and teaching on the doctrine of God and using our confessions of faith in the service and in other times is, in fact, training to live in the time we're living. So it's like, you know, we'll, you, you can hear it said, we'll take our way of doing something rather than your way of doing nothing. Okay, but is training people, you know, if we're going to have a Christian nation, let's just pretend for a moment that we're all on the same page on that. That means that it's essentially we're under the triune God. What does that mean? Who is that God? You know, uh, we need to know who he is. And training in the doctrine of God uh, is a is a clear way of training people to live in a time that is chaotic, that is filled with turmoil, division, and hatred. And knowing God's nature and character is of an essence for a Christian to live in the world at any time. Yeah. And especially and Especially now. in turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think, and I get this from myself. I get this from David Van Drunen and, and Calvin and, and and others. But I don't think people can. This idea of Christian nationalism of a Christian prince, they never reconcile that that government goes forward by way of coercion. It goes forward by way of force, whether it's whether it's at the end of a baton or a gun or legislatively by law and enforcement of it. That's how government works. You can either have to do that well or not. That is not how the gospel goes forward. The gospel is, 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 is it goes forward as a ministry of reconciliation of mercy so that you can do both. You can, you, you can be a Christian citizen and go, yeah, that person should go to jail. And at the same moment as Brad does, I'm gonna go preach the gospel to that guy in jail and affirm both things. It's right that he's there. It's right that the jails exist. It's right that the, that the government does this. And it's right that I come along as, as an officer of the church and preach to that man or that woman the gospel. To that point, and that's, that's, that's Sean's hit on a, a key problem with Christian nationalism, which is when you, when you bind the authority of government up with the gospel, uh, you're necessarily 
creating all sorts of um, dissonance and uh, bad PR, if I could, if I could put it that way. I mean, let people be mad at the cops. Uh, I don't want them to be mad at the cops because they're the Christian cops. I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. I mean, um, the, the state is law. I mean, yeah. The state is not gospel. Nope. Uh, now, the state might exercise mercy. And, and so one of the reasons why we're confused about this is because we don't have, again, basic Protestant categories. And so the, the law says do this and live. Uh, you break the speed limit, you've, you've violated the law, you're subject to punishment. Uh, the gospel says here is forgiveness uh, here is, you know, remission of sins. Here's the imputation of righteousness. It's all freely given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And uh, you live now obediently in light of that. And because of that, and in, and in union with Christ, uh, these are two different principles. So right. to have the, the state imposing the gospel is a contradiction of the thing. Exactly. Which is why, by the way, um, and I was just reading an, an essay by uh, uh, Gerald Lewis. He sent it to me, and he's he's asking the same question I'm asking. Again, where in the New Testament do you see the apostles uh, anywhere seeking the imposition of Christianity as the state religion? You just don't. It doesn't exist, and it doesn't ex- exist in the second century. And as far as I know, it doesn't exist in the third century. And it, it, uh, so it uh, to. It, it, well, you know, here's an example. Anybody that's listened to, to Presbycast knows that to get to church, I have to drop by a mega church on a four-lane highway. They have their own exit uh, for their convenience and ostensibly for public safety. Uh, there are rolling roadblocks uh, that shut down the four-lane while the you know the three Sunday morning services, the people come in and go out from them. Um, and there's, this is not 10,000 people, okay? This is a, you know, several hundred people is all we're talking about here at each service. And, um, you know, so the pagans are fuming in their in their um, their Camrys and their uh, F, F-250s, uh, waiting so that the, um, the megachurch crowd can, can quickly get out to go to the, to the restaurant. Uh, so whether the megachurch means it or not, they become the symbol by employing law enforcement officers and imposing their will on the common realm. Um, I don't think they've helped Christ's fame. I think they've hurt it. I don't think they've made the church look good. I think they've made it look bad and worldly and weak and um, addicted to convenience and allied with a silver a civil power which is never pure, perfect, and holy. Um, imagine that times a thousand with a national or even on some sort of local uh, nationalism uh, government uh, that was not exactly established, you know, not exactly an established church ruling things, but well, the, the church dark- being much more closely allied than it is now with the civil power. We don't even have to, Brad, we don't even have to imagine this. All you do is go back to medieval Europe. We can have Roman Catholic counties, and we can have Protestant counties, and we can have uh, Catholic monarchs and Protestant monarchs. I mean, we did this. Well, but but the we good thing is the, for five hundred years, the Christian uh, princes never go to war with each other. No, right. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, this is the problem with the lack of historical education. Right. 
that people don't know what the 30 years war or the 80 years war, and they don't know about the numerous wars after the 30 years war, uh, right up until the 18th century. There's a reason why the American founders did what they did. And it wasn't just because they were a bunch of deists. And the amazing thing about this country is that we proved that you can have Protestants and Catholics, uh, Jews and pagans and, and Muslims all living together, and we can live together in peace because we're not seeking to impose our religion on the other. I've got, I've got, I've got real-world family connections to this. In my <laughs> genealogy, there, are, there were people with my last name in Virginia, colonial Virginia, who were fined. I don't know if they were put in stocks. They were fined for not attending the established church. Yeah. Church of England was established there. And also fined for attending while intoxicated, and um, you know, so I've got that. I've got, got that in my blood. I'm with Clark on it. I, I'm not going to be part of. I'm not going to serve under under Doug Wilson's uh, Christian America or William Wolf or Stephen Wolf. You take a take a take a long walk off a short pier before that ever happens. It's not something going. I'm not going to do it. But Sean, one thing I think that it is. I don't know how helpful this is, but this is something I always come back to. You will never serve under a Doug Wilson government, Stephen Wolf, any of those guys, because if Christian nationalism in this country is imposed, it will not be them leading it. It yeah, will be true. the Robert Jeffers or Jeffries, whatever his name is at a first Baptist Dallas and, and, and other folks like that, because whether we like it or not, the heartbeat of Christianity in this country is at best uh, it, it, it's evangelical Baptist, and well, so these well, guys are not—they're not, they're not of it. And charismatic. That's a horror show to a guy like me. So yeah. Well, and charismatic restorationists. I mean, the yeah. real the real Reconstructionists in this country are a bunch of crazy. Um, what the new new apostolic, apostolic revolution reformation. Um, reformation yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, and it's what we own country. <laughs> and, and Roman and Roman Catholic integral integralists. Integralists. The, the, the Roman Catholic folks who are uh, in charge of the, you know some of the more significant non-governmental institutions in this country are a lot closer to the levers of power than Robert Jeffers. Oh yeah, go look at go look at the immigration along your border. That's all Catholic charities run. They are the third party vendor processor of every illegal that crosses the border. Darn near every illegal that crosses the border. I guess to refine my point, if we had a Protestant Christian nationalism, it will not be of any Presbyterian flavor. No, no, no we're right. we're we're a minority. Uh, we we're hardly a blip statistically yeah. in this country. And, so and that, you know, and that kind of ties into the title of Crazy Uncle. Like we need to remember as Presbyterians and American Protestantism, especially with Evangelicals, we are the Crazy Uncle. They're not going to put us in charge. Yeah. No, they think you're our theology sometimes, and they think we're nuts. Yeah, it's, our, yeah, our it's friend, delusional. Our friend Ken Shepard said, if you go to Thanksgiving and you can't identify the, the crazy uncle, you're him. <laughs> I mean, you can be normal. But I, I have a similar adage for churches who can't find a pastor. <laughs> go, go look at the Federalist Society. Show me the Protestants— that who are actively involved in the Federalist Society and influential in the Federalist Society. Um, I don't think that you can. 
uh, because I think I think it is uh, the the people of influence in the federal society are overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. Um, so that and, you know, the, and well, the even intro- in the media arm is that way too, right? Fox News is just Roman Catholicism across the board. Georgetown University, Notre Dame. I mean, that whole dynamic is Roman yeah. Catholic. So it it's just delusional to think that that there's going to be some. Uh, Baptist or Presbyterian or um, low church, state church. That's just not going to happen. Um, we, you know, we couldn't even do it in England, uh, right? The Presbyterians failed in England, and that was the last shot. And frankly, had they, in my view, had they not sought to get the levers of power, Presbyterianism might actually have um, had better fortunes in 17th in 18th century England, but because they went for the brass ring of being the state church and failed, um, they were uh, hated, uh, hated by the Anglicans um, and hated by the, to a certain degree, uh, by the Congregationalists. Yeah, it's amazing Westminster, the Westminster Assembly produced what it did, consider the turmoil they were in. I mean, there was a, there was a civil war and you know, multiple changes of changes of government going on during the, the writing of the rest, Westminster uh, standards. Well, look at look at John Owen's career. Um, you know, so when he gets connected with Cromwell, he's at the apex of his uh, influence. And uh, you know, people look at that and they think, "Well, look at that. That's great." Well, he's also associated with the things that went on in Scotland and the things that went on in Ireland, and. Uh, and then when uh, Cromwell is gone, uh, he's gone, and his career hits the back slope, and he ends up pastoring a small church and in relative obscurity uh, again. And, you know, rethinking, uh, you know, what did that all mean? Uh, what was the significance of all that? You know, it's pretty heady uh, preaching before Parliament and having some influence in, in what takes place, but then it all evaporates. Um, it's gone, and and then what good was it? What what was it for? And what was the cost of uh, aligning the church with the sword? Right? What did that get us ultimately? What what right. did that get Christianity in in the British Isles? Uh, what's the state of Protestant Christianity in the British Isles today? Now, obviously, it, it got to where it, it has for a variety of reasons, but the English Civil War and the attempt uh, to get what we um, sought to get, the various groups sought to get, is a big part of that story, or a significant part of that story. Can we say that the that the good fruit of it has been however many years? I don't I don't do math. However many years since that was written, the good fruit has been almost purely ecclesiastical. It's not to say there's not been fruit in other things, because the confession does deal uh, with things in um, the civil sphere, of course. But so much of the fruit has been for the church. You know, how many how many of us have are benefiting today from their work, and how many churches have been helped and stabilized? I mean, you know, and, and individuals as well, families over their efforts that are still there today. And so when we say like, you know, because I, I hear you, Dr. Clark, and I can hear a comment back saying, so they didn't succeed the way they probably should have. They can, well, okay, but 
what they're okay. So that was bad, but there's good fruit and it's noticed that it, where it typically goes. What do we make of that? I, I think we know what we should make of that. And the good fruit was the, was the wonderful confession and the theology uh, that, that came out of it and, and not the, the, the union of church and state. All right. Well, as we, as we wrap up, I think, I think my exhortation, see what you all think, is to uh, encourage people to decide now not to lose your mind over, I mean, I don't have any predictions politically about what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Just none. Anything could happen. We've got a lot of international stuff going on which could, could impact that. It's possible that the candidates for each major party are don't are we don't we haven't even heard of them yet. Um, uh, in, unstable is not the word, but I think my encouragement would be to um, decide now that you're not going to lose your mind. Uh, and I think it's just possible that being the calm person in the room might be a, the strongest witness at this point, whether it's this Thanksgiving. Or next Thanksgiving, uh, which is likely to really be a doozy, um, you don't have to respond to every provocation. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. Uh, and you don't have to, um, especially if you're the only Christian in the room, and, you know, where I'll be at Thanksgiving, my wife and I might be the only Christians in a, in a crowd of 30. Um we don't have to align our uh, our known Christian faith with some sort of political mania. Um, Please don't. Yeah, I mean, but you have to kind of decide that going in uh, that this year I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm probably not going to like it, and my neighbors aren't going to like it in a, in a different way and for a different reason, and I'm going to have some family who are. Um, you know, premillennial dispensationalists, Zionists, and I'm going to have some uh, other, other, other uh, more liberal family who are going to have a totally different. You know, we don't we don't need to be know-it-alls. We can bring historical context and uh, some wisdom, uh, some biblical wisdom. Uh, but I think maybe calm is about the best thing we can bring. Uh, does anyone agree with that? Yes. Sure. Be, calm. Be okay with not saying anything. That's that's okay. Um, you know, but also let it serve as a reminder when you're with folks that this world's not your home. It's a good time to remember that. I would just say a couple of things, you know, when you're being calm. Do so if you don't do it for any other reason. Do it for the sake of the wife who's hosting. And for, last, and for your she, own kids, for your own kids. Yeah, yeah for your own kids. But if you think about it, you're going to go to a home, and the odds are you're going to go to a home, and it's a host is a, a husband and a wife, and the wife is probably putting a lot into this. She's real excited or real nervous because she does not want to have something go down. Be the, be the person and say, I'm not going to disrupt if for the sake of this lady, especially when you're a guest in her home, that yeah. you're not going to make her, her home a source of tension and bad memories and such. Yeah. You know, um, the first 
sermon I ever preached as a pastor in a congregation was from Philippians 3.20. Your citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I, uh, I was always attracted to that text because he's writing to people who are in a Roman colony. And the temptation they faced, uh, to some degree, was to identify with Rome. These, some of these people were soldiers and civil servants who had, you know, served the empire. Some of them had shed blood in the service of the empire and, you know, had a certain pride in serving in the greatest empire in the world. And Paul says, you know, your citizenship is in heaven. And, you know, that sort of thinking is derided now as, you know, otherworldly. But the New Testament is unabashedly otherworldly. And um, so if we, if we adopted that attitude, I think that would help us a lot as we deal, especially, you know, just as you say, Pastor, in, in, a, in a practical way at Thanksgiving, um, gives us some perspective um, so that— um, you know, we don't lose our minds when people say, you know, outrageous things like, you know, I um, I think we need to rethink Osama bin Laden, <laughs> right? You have to, in that moment, you have a choice to make, whether to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, <laughs> or to, you know, just smile and not take the bait and remember my citizenship is in heaven. And um, this might not be the time to engage a really stupid argument from a really stupid person who's maybe had a glass of wine or six. Hey, hey, nothing wrong with that. Or, or maybe, <laughs> maybe in the South, just or, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of Mountain Dew. A bottle of wine, maybe, if it's a long day. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine more in my my hometown, it's going to be more PBRs than wine. A six-pack or a 12-pack? Uh, when, you, when you mix PBR with uh, irritation over the federal government, that is not a good comment. <laughs> it, it's actually it's actually proof of witchcraft uh, because it's like mixing things into a cauldron and then it starts steaming and uh, incredible sights come out of it. Alchemy. Yeah, I, I got to exactly. say for my for my part, uh, having just lost both my parents, um, I would I, you know calm not calm. I don't, I don't know. We were always a pretty boisterous group at home, so that that is part doesn't bother me. Make sure you enjoy your family. Um, you, you don't know what's around the corner. And, you know, some of us enjoyed, I, we used to have political debates and stuff, but it never got to the point where we didn't like each other over. It was just sport. It was fun. And I got to tell you, most of us don't ever touch the levers of power to, to let it destroy our personal lives at that kind of, at that kind of, at that extreme of your, of your family might be fun sport um but just enjoy your family enjoy your time together yeah actually having a good time is probably winning uh in, in, at, a, at a lot of uh, in a lot of ways um i want to stream resby's thanksgiving i do too i'm with you on that i want that I just, it, I, it's I honestly so much more disappointing than you think it is i actually uh, want to catch a flight and just show up at his house is really what i want to do it, it, my wife with with my wife and child in tow, and just feed me and entertain me. Uh, I want I want Resby Cam. It's it's me looking at my watch, wondering when I can uh, turn the Lions game on without offending anyone. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know we finish it off with uh, the greatest sporting debacle of the year: the Egg Bowl of Ole Miss versus Mississippi State, and. Uh, 
typically Thanksgivings are disappointing on the athletics front. Yeah, enjoyable from the family. Always disappointing. Well, I'm a cowboy fan, so it's it's used to be good until the past 25 years. But yeah, <laughs> I may actually I need I need to think about it. We've actually got some uh, we have some uh, I don't want to say like new land, but uh, it's possible I could actually get out in the woods on the morning of Thanksgiving oh, nice. and nice. Uh, try to go hunting, which which I've done before. And, and shot shooting a deer on Thanksgiving morning is like one of the I feel like the most American things you can do. Um, and by the time you get everything cleaned and put up, it's time to eat. And um, you've probably had a couple PBRs for breakfast um, <laughs> while you've got blood on your hands. And it's, it's truly a magical feeling. That is magical. <laughs> I went to the Egg Bowl and had to miss family dinner. So my buddy and I, we stopped at this gas station. They were selling whole turkey legs for the Egg Bowl Traveler. So we ate turkey legs while driving down Highway 6 to get to Oxford. And that was Thanksgiving dinner, only to watch Ole Miss pull out one over the dogs. So it was, did, a, it was did, a fun day. Did you get food poisoning is what I want to know. Mm. No, you get energy from eating the gas station. <laughs> all, the, all, the best, all the best smoked meats come from gas stations. This is, okay. this is natural law. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's a southern law, yeah. I only I only eat at places recommended by uh, Resbycast Eats. Presbycast Eats. The Chevron in Oxford has chicken on a stick, so you you can get you a turkey leg on Thanksgiving. At least you could twenty years ago, and then you get a chicken on a stick, and you go to the egg bowl, and you're doing you're doing all right. You're having a good yeah. time. We've we've it's, got a couple. When we drive to the coast, there's um, there's a gas station that has the best sausage I've ever had. And it's it's just a gas station counter and they keep it behind and uh you know behind the glass under the lamps and oh, yeah. oh it is it is so so good. Oh seriously the best gas station food ever is Rudy's. Rudy's barbecue started in Austin gonna... and it's Thank moved you. all the way to Scottsdale and Tucson. So when mm. when we get when we get far enough east, we stop and get Rudy's barbecue is so good. You don't want if you know anything, you don't want even to put sauce on it. It doesn't need sauce. Yeah, yeah because right. all the best barbecue in Texas is at the gas station. Oh, and Rudy's so is proof good. of that. Yeah. Well, the growth of gas station foods popularity is really might be postmillennialism's best cause. <laughs> <laughs> this I'm, thing is taking over. That's a good. I just. I just measured the distance to Bucky's. I think I'm 1,500 miles to, to the nearest Bucky's, which is very sad, really. Disappointing. So I, Your wallet thanks you. Yeah. Time does not permit my take on how great Bucky's is, but is it true, authentic gas station food? I'm not certain no. it is, but time no. does not allow my. Uh, it's it's gentrified gas station food. But uh, it's, it's corporate. It, it, it's it's a, corporate. It It's all of the reasons that a person coming from another country would either. Love or hate this hate. country because it is the the perfect distillation of what makes us great. Oh, it's I love, America. Bucky's is America. And uh, but you know when you are when you're giving thanks at Thanksgiving, give thanks to the Lord for the past memories of their chips that are no longer available because those were so good and they're gone. Their chips are gone. Yeah, they don't have their branded chips anymore. <laughs> But uh, but we still got we still got uh, well, but we still got Presbycast and uh, Presby's going to thank everyone as we we wrap up because um, 
everybody needs a little extra sleep in uh, preparation for next week. So, Resby, it, it's yours. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Job. Thank you, Dr. Clark, for coming on. Uh, this has been great. Uh, hopefully, um, your food is good. Um, don't put the frozen turkey in the fryer, for crying out loud. Um, you know, there, there's plenty of YouTube supercuts uh, that you can go watch later if you're really curious about what happens. But um, you you should fry your turkey. That is a good and wholesome activity for your soul. Um, enjoy uh, everything that comes with it. Enjoy your family. Um, enjoy whoever you're around, should you be uh, blessed to be able to do so. Uh, and above all, on Thanksgiving, don't be an Erdman. What's wrong with you people?